Well, let's open our Bibles tonight, the book of Judges, Judges chapter number 18 this evening. Judges chapter number 18. Let me just encourage you again to be praying for our young people, um, those who just came back from camp this week. Many of them made some very good, solid decisions for the Lord. We had one young lady um, who's not a member of our church, but attends um, special activities occasionally, who made a profession of faith in Christ this week, and we're, we're so thankful for that. And uh, pray that the Lord would continue the work in their life and that they would continue to yield to His working in their life and, and that they would grow. And uh, pray for uh, Miss Joy Frederick. She leaves tomorrow morning to head to the wilds herself. Uh, she was going to be partaking in the CIT program, which that stands for uh, Camper in Training. We had three of our young people that were a part of that the last two weeks, and she wasn't able to be in that session because of some scheduling conflicts. So she's going to be there this week and the next week. Um, and then uh, the Go Forth girls are headed up to Tennessee for a summer camp, and they'll be there all week this coming week. Uh, so pray for them, for traveling mercies for them as well, but that the Lord would work in their hearts. And then we look forward to on July the 30th, that Sunday morning, having a good testimony time and hearing what the Lord has done in the lives of these young people. You know, it's encouraging uh, for me to be able to be there at the Wilds with the teens, uh, not only to see how they're responding, how the Lord's working in their life, but just to see the number of, of other teens and other churches that are doing the same stuff we're doing here, just trying to preach the gospel and, and make disciples for the glory of God. Uh, they had over, uh, I think it was around 1,100 campers there this week between the teen camp and the junior camp, um, which is just phenomenal to see. And if you've never never been to the wilds or a camp like that, it just it's, it can almost be overwhelming to see that, that number of young people that um, are there. I know some of them don't, don't come for the right reasons. They're just coming to have fun or to get away for a week or whatever. Uh, but the Lord really works in a lot of people's hearts, and it's a blessing to see. Um, just kind of a, a, on a side note, a, a special blessing for uh, my wife and I this time was the, the number of teens that we saw during the week that we knew their parents from years gone by. I mean, we started counting up, um, and I think we counted eight different teens that were there from people that we went to college with or that people that we'd gone to church with in the past, and and some of them I haven't spoken to in 15 years, but there's their young person there at camp. And, and again, that was just an encouragement to see that, you know, folks are still out there, still staying true, still trying to do what is right. And, and now a whole other generation is being trained in the same way. And we're thankful so much for that. Well, Judges chapter number 18 tonight is where we're going to be looking. Judges chapter number 18 for the message. And uh, we're going to... Uh, begin where we left off last week when, as we looked at the story in Judges 17 of, of this man by the name of Micah. If you weren't here last week, this, this is just kind of the Cliff Notes version of what went on in chapter 17. But we're introduced to this man from Ephraim called Micah. And the story starts with his mother having had 1,100 shekels of gold stolen from her. And she was very upset about it to the point that she cursed whoever it was that stole this money from her. And her son finally steps up and says, Mom, it was me. I did it. I stole the money. And she, she said, well, thank you so much, son, for letting me know that because I was going to give this money to you anyway to, to make an idol to add to your collection. Uh, this man, Micah, had a house of gods. And so there was this little back and forth. And finally, the mother took 200 shekels of the 1,100. By the way, you ever wonder what she did with the other 900? I don't know. She's probably got a closet full of really expensive shoes somewhere. But anyway, 
took 200 shekels and she sent it uh, to the founder and had a silver idol made and it was added to this man Micah's collection of gods. He had this house of gods and he had all this other paraphernalia for worship and ephod and a teraphim and all this stuff. Well, one day uh, a young man, according to verse number 7, from Bethlehem, Judah, who was a Levite, came wandering by. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was just wandering around. He was just sojourning. He was just going to go anywhere he could find a place to say, do whatever. He was aimless. He had no direction in life, didn't know where he was going, didn't know what he was doing. And he found himself in uh, this man Micah's house. And when Micah heard that he was a Levite, he said, perfect, I've been looking for me a Levite. Uh, Why don't you come and why don't you... Just live with me and and I'll give you a salary, I'll give you food to eat, and I'll give you shelter, I'll give you clothes to wear, and you can be a father and a priest to me. And so this young man didn't have anything better to do with his life, and so he saw easy money, saw a good opportunity to uh, make a living, not have to worry about anything, and so he accepted the job and he became a priest in Micah's house. And in verse number 13, it says, Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good seeing that I have a Levite to my priest. See, Michael wasn't interested in worshiping God like God said. It was evidenced by the fact that he was making idols. He was not worshiping in the proper place. He wasn't worshiping in the proper manner. He wasn't interested in worshiping God like God said. All he wanted was a good luck charm. He wanted God just to do something good for him. That was his idea of worship. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people that have the same idea about worship. That they worship God because they hope God will do something good for them if they worship. They go to church on Sunday because they hope God will do something good for them if they go to church on Sunday. Uh, they, they, uh, they do all the, all the Christian things that they ought to do. And they check all of those spiritual boxes because they hope God will do some good thing for them. Their their motive is not to honor God and not to glorify God through obedience to His Word. Their motive is entirely, it's purely selfish. It's all for me. What can I get out of this? And so that's where we left off last week. And as we come to chapter number 18, we find what this very worldly manner of worship results in. And if I had to give a title to the message, I would say it's the disappointment of worldly worship. The disappointment of worldly worship. We're going to cover all of chapter 18 tonight. And we're going to kind of approach it a little differently. We're We're going to see three main characters, if you will. We're going to see this young man, the priest, he's a big part of this story. We're going to see a whole clan of people, the Danites, and their part in this story. And then Micah, the man we met in chapter 17, his part in this story. And in every single one of their their parts of the story, what we find is the disappointing result of worldly worship. That when you don't worship God as God says you should worship Him, the results will always disappoint you. There is never true satisfaction and fulfillment. It's only frustration. So I want to begin by reading in verse number 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in. For unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. 
And the children of Dan sent out of their family five men from their coast, men of valor, from Zorah and from Eshtoal, and to spy out the land and to search it. And they said unto them, Go search the land. Who when they came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. And they turned in hither and said unto him, Who brought thee hither? And what makest thou in this place? And what hast thou here? And he said unto them, Thus and thus dealeth Micah with me, and hath hired me, and I am his priest. And they said unto him, Ask counsel, we pray thee of God, that we may know whether our way which we go shall be prosperous. And the priest said unto them, Go in peace, before the Lord is your way wherein ye go. Heavenly Father, bless as we look at your word tonight to, to give us understanding of it and help us to evaluate honestly our own lives in the light of Scripture. That Lord, if we're guilty of worldly worship, that is worshiping you in a manner that is not how you've instructed or worshiping you for the wrong motive, just to get something out of it for ourselves, Lord, you'd reveal that to us, that we would get it right, and that we would have a heart of true, genuine worship for you and you alone. That you would get the glory from us that is rightfully yours. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin in this chapter here, we're reminded again that this was a time in Israel when there was no king. This is in the days of the judges. We don't know chronologically exactly when the events of 17 and 18 occurred. Probably a little earlier in the book rather than later uh, because we see here that the Danites are still trying to uh, acquire all of the land for their inheritance. But as we come into chapter 18, we find that the uh, children of Dan, one of the tribes of Israel, is in this process of trying to fill out their, um, their inheritance. They're trying to uh, acquire all the land that, that is rightfully theirs. Um, and, and just for a brief history here, if you were to go back to the book of Joshua, you would find at the end of the book of Joshua, not all the tribes had, had, had received all of their inheritance. And so Joshua gave them instructions to continue on, continue conquering, continue gathering inheritance until all the land has been possessed by the Israelites. So they're in the process of doing this, and they appoint five men to go out to spy out the land. Now, right away you may be thinking, this might not be a good idea, because you may remember the story from the book of Numbers when 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good, all right? And how long it took you in children's church to get those hand motions down correctly. And, uh, and, and so these five men are sent to spy out. And really this was more of a survey trip, if you will. So they, they need to go out. They need to figure out the lay of the land, where might be a good place to go, where there might be some Canaanites left that, that they could go and they could take the land from them as God had instructed them to do. And so they go out and, and as they're journeying along, they come through this area of the Mount Ephraim and they end up at this man Micah's house. And they end up staying the night there or spending some maybe a few days there. Now this was before the days of you know Hilton Hotels and Fairfield Inns and all those sorts of things. So you had... Just It was a very common practice that especially if someone was a large landowner and they had maybe multiple houses or multiple uh, buildings on their property that they would house guests on a regular occurrence. And so this was nothing necessarily out of the ordinary. But these Danites are staying, staying there and we're told that in verse number 3 they heard the voice of this young man, the Levite. 
Remember this young man who was just sojourning? He was just wandering around aimless, no direction in life. And he was uh, persuaded by Micah to come and be a priest to him. Well, they heard him talking and they noticed something. Have you ever heard someone talk and you thought to yourself, well, they ain't from around here, you know? So they heard him talking and they realized, he's not from around here. And so they, they, uh, they, 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 they engaged him in a conversation. They turned in thither and said unto him, verse 3, who brought thee hither? How'd you get here? Who brought you here? Uh, what are you doing in this place? Why are you here? And so verse 4, he relays the story of how he ended up in Micah's house. And it probably sounded like this. I was just wandering around, had nothing to do, and he offered me a job, so I took it. Well, that's essentially what he said when he said, He hath hired me, and I am his priest. Notice that, because we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Well, they find out he's a Levite, and apparently these Danites had the same idea that Micah did, that since he was a Levite, then he must have a special connection with God. And it would be beneficial to them to connect with this Levite and so they asked him a question. Verse 5, they said, Ask counsel of God that we may know whether our way which we go shall be prosperous. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think the Danites were asking that because they genuinely wanted God's direction for their life? Well, there's an indication here in how they asked the question that they were not genuinely wanting God's direction, nor were they asking for God's permission. Because they said, would you ask God whether the way which we go will be prosperous? You notice that? Hey, we've decided to go this way. Can you just, can you just ask God if, if this will be prosperous or not? In other words, they weren't asking for clear direction. They simply wanted him to act like a fortune teller. Tell us how this is going to work out for us. And verse 6, the priest said unto them, Go in peace before the Lord is your way wherein you go. Now we're going to see that they, they did achieve their end. But the end of the story for the Danites in chapter 18 is not a godly end. So don't mistake what verse number 6 is saying. This was not a declaration of God's blessing in all that the Danites were going to do. In fact, there's no indication at all that this Levite actually sought God's face. He didn't say, well, let me ask God, let me have a time of prayer, let me have a season of, uh, of meditation and prayer on this. No, <coughs> excuse me, it seems like he just responded, sure, go in peace before the Lord is your way wherein you go. Sure, go ahead, yeah, do it, that'd be great, you know, kind of idea. Let's continue on. And what, just so you know, we're going to briefly go through this chapter, and then we'll go back, and I want to show you some things from these three characters about the disappointment of, of worldly worship. So verse number 7, we continue on. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people that were therein, how they dwelt careless after the manner of the Zidonians, quiet and secure, and there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. For they were far from the Zidonians and had no business with any man. And they came unto their brethren to Zorah and to Eshtil, and their brethren said unto them, What say ye? And they said, Arise that we may go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And are ye still? Be not slothful to go and to enter to possess the land." When you go, you shall come into a people secure, into a large land, for God hath given it into your hands, a place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. So these five men, they go and continue their journey. They see this area uh, in a city called Laish. And they notice that this, pay, this place is just paradise. 
I mean, these people, they don't even have police officers around. Everything's just so wonderful. Everybody's enjoying themselves. Life is great. They've got plenty of eat. There's no wars. They're far away from everybody. They don't, in fact, they're so far away, it says they had no business with any man. So they were almost like a little hermit kingdom here. And they go back to their brethren, the Danites, and they give the report and say, hey, what are you waiting for? Let's go and uh, let's take this land. Surely God will give it to us. Verse 11, there went from thence the family of the Danites out of Zorah and out of Eshtael, 600 men appointed with weapons of war. And they went up and pitched in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah. Wherefore they called that place Mahanadan unto this day. Behold, it is behind Kirjath-Jerim. And they passed thence unto Mount Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. All right, so now we've kind of taken a full loop. They've gone back. They've told their brethren... Yes, there's this wonderful place called Laish. It's great. Let's get our stuff. Let's go attack them. Let's conquer this land. They come back and they end up back at Micah's house. Now verse 14. Then answered the five men that went to spy out the country of Laish and said unto their brethren, Do you know that there is in these houses an ephod and a teraphim and a graven image and a molten image? Now therefore consider what ye have to do. Pause for just a second. With everything that you know about the Old Testament law and about what God commanded with worship, when you hear the phrase or that statement, now therefore consider what ye have to do. They said, there's this guy and he's got this house of idol worship. Think about what you need to do. What would be the right response in this situation? Somebody, somebody just tell me. Destroy it. Okay, destroy it. That would be the right response. Later in Israel's history, you'll see a number of kings that would come to the throne after a time of Israel being in idolatry. And as a part of their revival and bringing the nation back where it ought to be, they would destroy houses of idols and they would lay waste the groves and all of the implements that were used to worship false gods. So when they said, consider what you have to do, think about what you need to do because this guy's worshiping idols. The right thing to do would have been to go in, destroy the idols, wipe it out and say, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. But, verse 15, And they turned thitherward and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, even unto the house of Micah, and saluted him. And the six hundred men appointed with their weapons of war, which were of the children of Dan, stood by the entering of the gate. And the five men that went to spy out the land went up and came in thither, and took the graven image, and the ephod, and the teraphim, and the molten image. And the priest stood in the entering of the gate with the six hundred men that were appointed with weapons of war. And these went into Micah's house and fetched the carved image, the ephod, and the teraphim, and the molten image. Then said the priest unto them, What do ye? So they go in, and rather than destroy these idols and all of the things used in the worship of idols, they steal them. They take them for their own. And here's this young man, the priest. There's 600 men standing outside the fence. The five men who were the spies came in to take all the stuff. And he asks the question, verse 18, Hey, what you doing? <laughs> That's just a funny response to me. It's kind of obvious what they're doing, right? They were stealing. They were taking everything. And they said unto him, verse number 19, Hold thy peace, lay thine hand upon thy mouth, and go with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Do you remember who else gave him that offer? In chapter 17, Micah. 
He said, I'll make you a father. I'll make you a priest. Come work for me. Now this whole tribe of the Danites are saying, we'll make you a father and a priest. Shh, be quiet, be quiet. Your boss is going to hear. Put your hand on your mouth. Why don't you come with us? Be a father, be a priest. Verse 19, we continue. Is it better for thee to be a priest under the house of one man or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel? They said, we got an offer for you, buddy. Think about it. Would you rather be one priest in one, one lone guy's house or would you rather come and be the priest of an entire tribe in Israel? And look at verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod and the teraphim and the graven image and went in the midst of the people. He got to thinking about it and he said, I like the sound of that. So he took the stuff and they, he went with them. So verse 21, they turned and departed and put the little ones and the cattle and the carriage before them. When they were good way from the house of Micah, verse 21, the men that were in the houses near to Micah's house were gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. So word got out, hey, the Danites come and, and, and they came and they took a bunch of things and, and now they're going and so they gathered together this little uh, posse, if you will, to go out after them. In verse 23, they cried unto the children of Dan and they turned their faces and said to Micah, what aileth thee that thou comest with such a company? So they, this little posse goes out after these 600 armed men of the Danites and, and uh, they, uh, they cried after them, Hey, stop, where are you going? Bring back our stuff. I don't know exactly what they said, but the Danites stopped and, and said, Hey, buddy, what's your problem? That, that's what, what aileth thee means. Okay, just so you know. What's your problem? What aileth thee that thou comest with such a company? Uh, what's your problem that you're coming with your little small posse here to bother us? Well, here's Micah's reply, verse 24. He said, you've taken away my gods which I made. And the priest, and you're gone away, and, and what have I more? And what is that ye say unto me, what aileth thee? In other words, he says, what do you mean what's my problem? You took my stuff. You took my gods. You took my priest. I mean, what did you leave me? What is it? And now you're asking me what aileth thee. You know what my problem is. You stole my, t you stole my stuff. Listen to, listen to verse 25. And the children of Dan said unto him, Let not thy voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows run upon thee, and thou lose thy life with the lives of thy household. This was a not so thinly veiled threat. Micah, you better be quiet and go home, lest you and your whole family be killed. And the children of Dan went their way, verse 26, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back unto his house. And they took the things which Micah had made and the priest which he had and came unto Laish unto a people that were at quiet and secure and they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire and there was no deliverer because it was far from Zidon and they had no business with any man. And it was in the valley that lieth by Bethrehob. And they built a city and dwelt therein. They called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born unto Israel. Howbeit the name of the city was Laish at first. Verse number 30. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. It's very likely that this is the same graven image that Micah's mom 
had had made with the 200 shekels of silver. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the end of the captivity of the land. And they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made, all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. I told you that this was going to be about the disappointment of worldly worship. I want to show you through all three of the main characters here, and I'm, I'm lumping the Danites together into one, how that every one of them, because they engaged in worldly worship, ended up sorely disappointed. Let's start with this young man, the priest. We met him in chapter 17 because he was a wandering youth, had no direction, no point in life. He didn't know what God's will for him, him was. He, just, he was just out there sojourning wherever he could sojourn. And he was offered a job as a priest. Now, if this young man had any kind of spiritual, um, spiritual instruction, or if he cared the least about honoring God with his life, he would not have accepted this job. Because he would have understood that it was wrong to worship idols, and therefore it would be wrong to lead others in the worship of idols. But he did not view this as an opportunity to serve God with his life. He viewed this, apparently, as an easy way to make a living. And so his worldly view of worship was the worldly view of a worldly preacher. He had a very secular view of ministry. His idea of ministry was it was just a job, something he could do to pay the bills. I think it's very telling that when back in chapter 18, verse number 4, when he explains to the Danites how he ended up there, that he used this phrase, and hath hired me. Hired me. You hire employees, but God calls Preachers, there's a big difference. As a church, you need to understand that a church does not hire a preacher. A church does not hire a pastor. We do not hire evangelists. We do not hire missionaries. God calls them. And as a church, we support them in fulfilling God's calling. I know that may sound a little self-serving because I'm the pastor. But can I just explain to you something for those who maybe, maybe you've not really heard much of, of my testimony and our family's testimony about how we ended up here at Philadelphia Baptist Church. And, because who in the world's ever even heard of Rutledge, Georgia, right? You know? How, how did we end up here? You say, well, the church hired you. No, that's not it. For us, our family was serving the Lord up in Newton, North Carolina. You've probably never heard of that either. Just like we had never heard of Rutledge. And one day, this, this man called me that was an, a, a college professor of mine. His name was Joel Spencer. And he says, I'm down here helping this church in Georgia. And I've been putting off calling you for a long time. But I've now had three people tell me that I need to call you. And, say, Are you, and see if you would be interested and coming down, and maybe possibly candidating for this church. And you know what my answer was? These exact words, no. 
but I'll pray about it. It's exactly what I told him. We weren't looking for another ministry. We were not actively seeking anything. Now, some men are in a position where they need to do that, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to do. I'm just telling you where we were. We were settled where God had us. We thought we were going to be there indefinitely. And then I get this random phone call. And so I said, no, but I'll pray about it. Some time went by, and some more phone calls were made, and, and the Lord just began to move and direct in certain particular ways. And I'm making a very long story less long. We came down for a little meet and greet. We met the people of Philadelphia Baptist Church, got to know one another. And we began to pray specifically about whether or not it was God's will for us to come here. So over the course of some months, we prayed about it, got to know one another a little bit better. And for our family, my wife and I specifically, there were five specific things that we were praying for that if it was God's will for us to come to the middle of nowhere, Georgia, that God would answer in these five specific ways. I'm not going to go into what they were tonight. I'm just going to leave you hanging there, okay? But we began to pray for God's specific direction because it was going to be a huge change for our family. It was going to affect two whole churches. It's going to be a big deal. And we did not want to do it if it wasn't God's will. Ultimately, God checked every one of those boxes. And I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that Philadelphia Baptist Church did not hire me. God called me to come to Philadelphia Baptist Church in Rutledge, Georgia. And that's how it ought to be with every preacher, every evangelist, every missionary, every Christian school teacher, every youth pastor, every assistant pastor, every person everywhere that serves God in ministry should do it because it's a calling, not because it's a job. There are better ways to make easy money. Let me just say that. And if a person is in ministry just to get a paycheck, they have a very worldly view of what ministry is. So he if you want to keep a little outline about this man's view, his worldly view, he viewed ministry as a vo vocation. That's number one. Number two, my time's getting away from me, so I'm going to go faster. Number two, he was enamored by promotion. He was enamored by promotion. Because this tribe came, remember the story? They said, hey, is it better to be the priest of one man or a whole tribe? Here's your opportunity to take the next step up the corporate ladder. You can become a big shot. Is it better to have just one follower or a whole tribe of followers? And this man, verse number 20, said his heart was glad. He was happy to take this chance for a promotion. It was going to be more fame, probably more money, more prestige. Maybe a little bit higher standard of living, could have some nicer clothes, maybe eat a little better food. He could have a brand new chariot, you know? He didn't have to buy one used or secondhand. I don't know what exactly he was thinking here, but it was obvious that when he had the opportunity for promotion, he took it. He wasn't interested putting aside the fact that it was sinful and wrong for him to be leading an idol worship. You see that there's absolutely no loyalty here to this man? He's, there's no loyalty at all 
to the, to the guy who took him in and gave him a job and fed him and clothed him for who knows how long. No, he took the opportunity to seek promotion. Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, he had to tell his scribe, Baruch was his name. At one point, Baruch was getting a little bit too big for his britches. Okay? And he told Baruch, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And there are a lot of people in positions of ministry that are all about the promotion. They're all about promoting themselves. They're all about climbing the religious corporate ladder. And, uh, and a pastor in one church, if he gets an opportunity to take a bigger church with a more well-known name, boy, he's going to jump on it because he thinks that in order for him to do something great for God, God has to make him into something great, as in famous and well-known. And that is a worldly view of ministry. Ministry is not the corporate world where you step over people to climb up the ladder to achieve success. Jesus said, him that is greatest among you, let him be your servant. He was enamored by promotion. But then I want you to notice, and this is the disappointment part of his worldly view, he ended in oblivion. He ended in oblivion. Look at verse 30 and 31 again. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. That's that idol. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Where was that young man from? Somebody remember? Somebody tell me. Huh? The tribe of Levi. Right. So who's this Jonathan guy? This Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. Not the tribe of Levi. Okay, this is not the same guy. This is what I'm pointing out to you. It's, Jonathan is not the same guy. We don't know who Jonathan is, and we have no idea what happened to that young man. He is never mentioned again. His name is never recorded. We know nothing else about what happened to him after he took the stuff and went with the Danites. We do know that their promise to him was not fulfilled. They said, we'll make you a father and a priest. They didn't do it. They made some other guy a priest. And for this man who thought ministry was just a vocation, who was enamored by promotion, he ended in oblivion. We have no idea whatever, what he did after this point. Here's the takeaway. He made no impact for eternity. He made no impact for eternity. No positive impact whatsoever. His story stands for us today as a cautionary tale. Don't do this kind of a thing. Why? Because he had a worldly view of worship and ministry. Very quickly, let's consider Micah's part in this story. We know Micah from chapter 17 had the house of gods. It's this guy that we're talking about. So verse number, we're going to pick it up in verse number 22 of chapter 18 again. So they've come and they've taken all his things. He's found out about it. And so he gets together his posse. He goes out after them. Why? Well, here's the first disappointing aspect about his worldly worship. Jot this down. His gods, little g, needed rescue. I mean, how disappointing is that? When you have to go and rescue your God. And that's literally what is happening here. They literally came and took his gods, and now he's the one that has to go after them to save his gods. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who saves, not a God who needs saving? 
Incredibly disappointing when your God is not powerful enough to protect himself from even 600 men or even five men or even one measly priest. How disappointing is that? But listen, that is what every false God is. Whatever idol we might set up in our own hearts, whether it's a literal idol of stone or whether uh, it is uh, the idol of fame, fortune, or whatever it might be, whatever idols we worship, whatever we worship that's not the true God will always disappoint us in the same way. Because they are false gods, they can do nothing for us, they cannot even save themselves. His idols, his gods needed rescue. But here's another disappointing thing that happened. His priest deserted him. His priest deserted him. This guy that he took in, paid paid him a salary, fed him, gave him a place to uh, sleep. All of a sudden now he's gone. No goodbye, no thank you. No, hey, I'm going to take this opportunity. Here's my notice. Nothing like that. He just deserts him while stealing his stuff. Do you think you might be a little frustrated if you were in that position? I know I would be. But see, the thing about this is when when you worship false gods and when your worship is worldly, inevitably what you will find is those who lead in that worship will disappoint you greatly. Now, all men have feet of clay. What do I mean by that? I mean that we're all sinners, okay? And we don't put our trust in men because men, all men, can disappoint you. But there is a special danger from those who lead in false worship. That's why Jesus said we were to be careful about false teachers because they go around in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. There's there's another level of danger here. You look in 2 Peter, you look in the book of Jude, you look in Titus chapter 1, all of those passages that deal with false teachers and false prophets. And what you will find is that inevitably they end up harming those who were leading, they were leading and disappointing them greatly. When you worship God properly, God will give you shepherds after his own heart. When you worship God in a worldly manner, you're going to end up with worldly shepherds who devour the flock. So he was disappointed because his gods needed rescue, because his priests deserted him. And then finally he was disappointed because he was defeated. He was defeated. He went out after the Danites and they had this very brief encounter. And they basically said to him, hey buddy, you need to close your mouth and go home. Because you're about to get hurt. You're about to get killed. Lest some angry fellow run in among thee. And what did he do? The Bible says that he turned and went back into his house. That's it. He went back in utter defeat. His gods were gone. His priest was gone. And now the house that was filled with gods is now an empty shell. And anybody that worships a false god will end up in that same place. There will come a day when the house that you had filled with all of your false gods will be nothing but a disappointing empty shell. 
It will all come crashing down and you will realize that it wasn't worth it to live for self. It wasn't worth it to live for pleasure. It wasn't worth it to live for fame. It wasn't worth it to live for success. None of that was worth it. It all left you frustrated, dissatisfied, and disappointed. And let's close by looking at the Danites and their part in this story. Now, of all of the characters we've looked at, it would seem like they ended up in the best position because they did conquer the land, they did set up a city, they did establish themselves. But there's something in verse 31 that we must take note of. It says, And they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made, all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Verse 30, it says that this man Jonathan and his sons, they were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Did you know that for hundreds and hundreds of years, Dan, the area, the region, the tribe, would be a center of idol worship in Israel throughout Israel's history. They became infamous for leading God's people astray. How did this happen? Well, I see at least three things from this story that describes their worldly worship that ultimately resulted in in this infamy. First of all, their, their view of worship and of God was superstitious, not scriptural. It was superstitious, not scriptural. How do I know that? Because they did the same thing Micah did when they saw a Levite. Ooh, goody, a Levite. Let's get us a Levite and everything will be great. You know, he's the, uh, the lucky rabbit's foot, which somebody pointed out to me last week. That rabbit's foot wasn't very lucky for the rabbit that lost it, you know. It's our good luck charm. Woohoo! we got us a Levite. Everything's going to be great now. This was not a sincere or rather not a nice scriptural view of worship. Why? Do I, how do I know that? Because they, they took the idols. They took the teraphim. They took the ephod. They took all of the stuff that was involved in superstitious ritual. And you say, well, whew, I'm, glad, I'm glad that we don't have to worry about that. Wait a second. Do, do we not have to worry about that? I remember years ago, I was talking to a man who was a member of the church I pastored at the time. And he was talking about a situation from years gone by where somebody had done something wrong to him. And how it just hurt him really badly. And he, he, he relayed this to me. I'll try my best to relay it as he did and not slant it one way or the other. But this was the essence of what he said. He said, that really bothered me until one day somebody told me that I needed to pray and he named a psalm, one of the psalms, okay? That was what we would call an imprecatory prayer. It was one of David's prayers for punishment on his enemy. And he, this man said to me, so somebody told me I needed to pray that psalm against that person every single day. And that's what I did. And this man proceeded to tell me that for a time, every single day, he would pray that psalm, recite or read that psalm against that man in hopes that God would punish him. And I'm sitting there listening to this man. I'm thinking, are you, are you serious? You, you think that you can use the Bible like a, a book of magic spells? That you could just recite this psalm and somehow... This bad thing's going to happen to this other person? First of all, Jesus said, love your enemies. And when he said, pray for them which despitefully use you, he didn't mean pray that God would punish them in the worst way possible. 
He said you're supposed to do good to them that despitefully use you. And second of all, is it your view of Scripture that if you would just recite these words like some kind of an incantation, that some magical things are going to happen? Now, there may be some in here tonight that you kind of struggle with this a little bit. You might think, well, if I just, if I just say these words, then this outcome will come. That's not how the Bible works. Every word of God is given by inspiration and is profitable. For what? First of all, for doctrine. To teach us the truth. For doctrine, for reproof. You know what it means to reprove? It means to tell you what's wrong. For correction, number three. What does correction mean? That's how you make what's wrong right. And for instruction in righteousness, number four. That's how you keep what's right, right. God gave us His Word so we would know the truth, so that we could fix what's wrong, and we could make it right, and we could stay right. How do we do that? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We get into the Bible so that we can learn about God, we can learn about ourselves, we can learn what God wants us to know about Him. That's why God gave us His Word. It is His revelation of Himself to us. And to reduce it to a fairy tale or some kind of a book of spells is to take a superstitious view of God's Word that is absolutely unscriptural. Now let me make sure I balance this out because I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I think there is something very special and very important about committing the Word of God to our hearts to remind ourselves of the truth at specific times that we need it. I think we need to put God's Word in our heart, memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture, because there are going to be times where we're going to be tempted to think things and to do things, and we need that Word of God to be able to bring to our minds, to be able to say it to ourselves, not because the words are the equivalent of a magic spell, Here's the point, so that we can be reminded of the truth. Like Jesus, when he was tempted of the devil. What did he do every time that he was tempted? What did Jesus do? He quoted Scripture. He quoted Scripture. So don't misunderstand me tonight. I'm not saying we shouldn't put God's Word in our heart and memorize it word for word. I'm saying we absolutely should. But I'm saying we should do it for the right reason. is so that we can know God and we can know God's truth. We must not have a superstitious view of our worship, but a scriptural view. The second mistake that they had made is this, is that they were shallow and not sincere. They were shallow and not sincere. All they cared about was surface level appearance stuff. And I get that from the fact that they really wanted a Levite too. They wanted to be able to say they had a Levite. We got a Levite to our priest. Great. Good. Everything's going to be hunky-dory now. That's a good Bible word, by the way. Hunky-dory. It's a very shallow view of, of worship, isn't it? But it's not unlike those who say, well, I came to church, so everything's going to be good now. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't run with those who do. I, I'm good now, right? And it's all just surface-level appearance stuff. It's that deep. Here's the thing about a river that's an inch deep. It's not going to move much. It could be a mile wide, but if it's not very deep, it's not going to move much. If you want worship that will truly move you closer to God, it's going to have to be deep. 
You're going to have to get below the surface level stuff and get to the heart of matters. To the matters of your own heart so that you can get close to the heart of God. It was shallow. It was not sincere. They weren't interested in worshiping God like God said. My time is up, so let me give you this last one and we'll close. Ultimately, it was sacrilegious and not sacred. It was sacrilegious and not sacred. Why? Because they set up an idol in a place where they shouldn't even been worshiping at all. It says that they did this all the time the house of God was at Shiloh. Time is short, so I can't go into all the detail, but the tabernacle was set up in a place called Shiloh all the way up until the time that Solomon built the temple. Okay? And so for those generations, however many generations it was, that idol was, a, was, was set up in a place and people would come to it and they would worship there in direct contradiction of God's declared law. Worship God only. Don't make any graven images. And they did exactly the opposite. There was nothing truly sacred about their worship. It was all sacrilegious. And let me tell you, there is a lot of sacrilegious stuff that's going on today in the name of worship. When so many modern worship songs could be sung just as easily about somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend as they could about Jesus, there's nothing sacred there, okay? When church services are just uh, about stirring emotional experiences so that people can go out feeling like they had a good time, and that's all it is, there's nothing sacred there. It's sacrilegious. When people are abandoning the truth of the Word of God and and because they feel like they have to appeal to modern culture. There's nothing sacred there. It's sacrilegious. Brother Dean, I think you uh, last week maybe you read the Sparkle Creed to your class. Uh, the adults in here, not the young people, but the adults in here, if, you, if you're not aware of what that is, take a minute to look that up. It's called the Sparkle Creed. It's disgusting being read in churches as an affirmation. The church is affirming what God calls to be an abomination. There's nothing sacred about that. Sacrilegious. And so the, the Danites ended in infamy because they had the worldly view of worship. And here's the point as we close. All of these folks, their worldly worship was a disappointment to them. Now for us, it is a reminder that there is one God. We're to worship Him and Him alone. One of the temptations that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 4, the devil told Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the glory of all the kingdoms of earth. And Jesus responded, it is written, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt worship the Lord and Him only. Him only shalt thou serve. We worship God and we worship God alone. And we worship God as He says He is to be worshipped. Anything else inevitably will lead to disappointment. With heads bowed and eyes closed this evening, God 
is worthy of our worship. But are we giving him the worship that he deserves? And I know that in here tonight, there's probably not going to be anybody that has a shelf in their house with literal idols that they go home to and burn incense to and pray to and all those kinds of things. But there's an altar in our heart that we worship at every day. Are we truly worshiping God and God alone? Are we giving Him the best of our time and our energy and our devotion? Are we just God giving God token service and token worship? Are we just showing up at church when we think we're supposed to so that we might get some good thing from God? Are we just checking the boxes so that we you know, can say we have our spiritual Levites and now God's going to bless us? Or are we truly motivated by a heart's desire to obey God and glorify Him through Him, through His Word and obedience to His Word? What's the truth about you tonight? Maybe the Lord has pointed out some areas where you've been guilty of some worldly worship in the way that you've been thinking, the way that you have been relating to God. If so, I want to invite you to take a moment and pray to the Lord about it. He and He alone should get glory from our lives. Our Heavenly Father, I know we say all the time that we want you to be glorified in us and all that we say and do. But if we're not careful, that can just become... a trite saying, a platitude, and our hearts not truly be in it. Lord, I pray that tonight you would bring us back to the place of genuine heart worship where we desire to give you the best of our time and our energy and our devotion because you deserve it. And I pray it in Jesus' name.